All right, let's turn together to Ephesians chapter 4. The last, uh, I guess maybe in May and all throughout the summer, it's kind of been a trajectory that was unplanned at the beginning. God just kind of kept adding on to it and talked about the Holy Spirit for a while and then transitioned into how the Spirit has gifted the church. And in the month of August, we're going to take that time to kind of recalibrate uh, and look at how all those things flesh out here at Living Hope. Kind of what is the, not the five-year plan vision, but just like the deep heart, like where is the five-year plan rooted for us? What are the what are the core values here? What are the things that we're going for? And today is going to bridge between those those two things as we look at this pretty brilliant chapter that uh, as Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus, he, he spends the first three chapters uh, laying this incredible theological foundation. And Ephesians 2 is one of my favorite uh, explanations of the gospel and in, in, in all of the, of the Bible. And so he, he lays this foundation, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6 are just really practical ways that that foundation shows up in our lives. And so we're going to look at the first 16 verses. It's going to be pretty fast. Uh, I could spend a lot of time uh, going really slowly through this, but I want to do a flyover so that you can know where the next couple of weeks are going to come from scripturally, just like where that those concepts are. So uh, I'll talk about a verse, and then I'll uh, read a verse, I'll talk about it, read a verse, talk about it, kind of one of those things. So let's start with just, just look at verse 1 in Ephesians chapter 4. It says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So he's not talking meta, like a metaphorical prisoner kind of thing. He's actually in prison. Uh, this was a kind of a regular thing for Paul, and it's not because he was a bad guy. He just kept getting arrested for sharing the gospel of Jesus with people. And uh, that was his, uh, his vice, I guess. And so there are plenty of times where he's writing from jail uh, these letters to churches or people that, he, that mean a lot to him that he's keeping up with. And, and so uh, I say that to say this. This dude has some credibility with us. Like, he's not like telling them to do stuff that he's not also himself doing to the point where he's willing to be arrested for it. Um, and so he says, as a, as a prisoner of the Lord, like hear, hear what I'm saying to you. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Like the way that you live your life should be consistent with your calling. Those two things should not uh, disagree with one another. They should be in, a, in agreement. And so you really have to understand your calling in order to understand what it looks like to walk in a manner that's worthy of that. And so what is what is this calling? Well, in, he sums it up very well at the beginning of the letter. And so let me read to you Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And here's where the calling, here's the summary, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us, 
in the beloved. And so that last part of verse 4 and all, and, and that first part of verse 5 sums up what the calling is. To be holy and blameless. And in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So our calling is to be holy and blameless sons and daughters. To be holy, loved children. That's our, that's our calling. Um, not intimidating. Not complicated. You just, you just need to be who he's made you to be. Be his kids. To, to recognize the, the weight of that. And yes, there's the word predestined in there. We don't need to get real uptight about that, you know. And think of it in this in this way: if you were to go on vacation and you were to take out your phone and plug your destination into the GPS, when you arrived there, you would have like arrived at your destination. And so, as you're traveling there, you are that is your your predestination. Baton Rouge is your predestination. Orange Beach apparently is everyone's destination. Uh, He's saying from the beginning, he's been bringing you to this. Like your entire life has been leading you into sonship, into daughtership. This has been your destiny. He's had you on this path the whole time. And so our calling is to be holy, loved sons, holy, loved daughters. So in chapter 4, he's saying live a life that's consistent with that kind of calling, with that incredible blessing in Christ. That's that, that first verse alone, there's, enough, there's plenty of sermons in there. There's plenty of devotional thoughts. There's plenty of you're sitting on your bed with your Bible open pondering that one verse. You don't have to ponder chapters and chapters at a time. Just take a phrase, take a word, take a sentence like this and just think about it. But what he's saying is like, look, I'm in prison for this stuff. Make sure that your life matches the incredible calling on your lives to be holy loved children. What does that look like in real life? Like, like in action, that's what, is what verse 2 is about. It says, with with all humility and gentleness and pa- with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Okay, well, who, who's, who does this sound like? Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with other people in a loving way. I mean, Jesus modeled for us what a life worthy of the calling looks like. He showed us what it looks like to have a life that's consistent with the, the, the beauty of what we are called to. And so Paul's essentially saying Christ-likeness. That's, that's what it looks like in action. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's a, it, that's a pretty killer verse. Um, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Well, the unity is the Spirit's. Like the Spirit uh, is, the Holy Spirit is who has unified us. And so uh, we're not here to create unity. The, the Spirit has already done that. We're, we're here to maintain the unity that the Spirit has already like, given to us. 
there are times when it feels like, especially in our world that's so divided, like we're always, like we're trying to be unified, we're trying to be unified. And that's very true outside of the church, but inside the church, it's not that we have to unify ourselves, it's that we have to realize that we're unified. God loves, he, he loves that his sons and his daughters are like one. And when God loves something, it means that our enemy hates it. Right, that's always always going to happen. And so, if God loves something, the enemy is going to try to get in there and mess with it. And the thing is, the the you know that the devil cannot mess with the unity of the spirit. Like he's unable to do it. He's super prideful, and uh, he thinks that he can. And even though after centuries of failure, he continues to think that he can somehow figure it out. Uh, he cannot do it. He cannot undo what the spirit has done. And knowing that, the next best thing is to convince us that he has. And so there are these little lies about church and the church and church people and people at your church and those kinds of things. And so all these lies come in here and he likes to whisper and make us think that we are divided. Make us think that we are against one another. Uh, Make us think that there are ulterior motives. Ulterior, ulterior, whatever the word is, motives. Uh, there's all these kind of things. There's all this like suspicion and all that kind of stuff. He's trying to make us think that, but the whole time the spirit's like, I've got this together. Come on. Like it's not true, but we can sometimes become convinced that it is. And that's why Paul is writing this letter. He's like, you, you are holy loved children. The Spirit has given you unity. There's a bond between you, and that bond is shalom. The, the wholeness, the, the oneness that, between God and you and, and, and humanity that the cross has produced, like there's, you have been reconciled. Like it's, it's done. So it's like this incredible reminder that I feel like we, we all need sometimes. It's like, oh yeah, we, we really are. Siblings, like we really are all saved by the same blood. This is crucial when it comes to the mission of the church, because if we if we are believing lies that we are not against each other and we're suspicious and we're talked bad about this church or that church or that that denomination or whatever it may be, then then even though we're not broken and fractured, we begin to behave as though we are. And that can be pretty damaging. Um, and so it's a beautiful word that Paul brings to them and to us. And so the unity is not something that we, we manufacture. It's something that we are eager to maintain. That we, we stand with one another in that. We, we refuse to believe any lies to the contrary. And so as a result of our calling, we're, we're eager to maintain the unity of this incredible family that God has given us. You have this, you have the capital C, like universal church, like all these brothers and sisters that are out there. And then that church is subdivided into, into local expressions because that's a big, that's a lot of people, right? Subdivided into these local expressions. And so within our own congregation, like there, there is this, Thing that exists, this bond of peace, this unity that the Spirit provides. That in our calling, uh, we are not called to something that requires us to unify in order to accomplish. We're, he's already done that for us. And as we set out on any sort of mission, any sort of of uh, 
like anything we're trying to do and join God in, we've, we're already one in that. He drives the point home in, in the next verse. He says, verse 4, there's one body, one spirit. Just as you're called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He believes in this. And he wants them to believe in us. He wants us to believe in this. And so if we're going to talk about the mission of the church, it's like we have to like embrace the fact that God is all he has already like set us up to be able to get it done. He's called us together to this beautiful thing. And so he transitions just a little bit and speaks to spiritual gifts, but he does it very differently than he does in dress, addressing Corinth. Those are two different groups of people. Uh, they have diff, very different needs. He knows both groups very well. And so he's like, I'm going to say it this way to the church in Corinth, but I'm going to say it this way to the church in Ephesus. Uh, the, the truths are the same, but he expresses it very differently. And so if you're tired of hearing it about spiritual gifts, the way he talked about it in, in Corinthians, then today's your day, because this is a completely different way of thinking about it. But it's actually really very much the same. Look at what he says in verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he goes, he quotes Psalm 68. Says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Then there's this parenthetical afterthought. And in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower region, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now there you see, I, I, I could spend a lot of time kind of like, let's deconstruct that and map it all out. Let me just give you the summary for the sake of time. Psalm 68 is about a victorious king who has the spoils of victory and he shares the spoils with his soldiers. In war, they, the spoils of victory could be money, it could be land, it could be horses or cattle or weapons. There's just all kinds of things. And oftentimes, the king who had the right to all, everything that they won would share it with the soldiers. And so what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the, Jesus descended to the earth. He's talking about the incarnation and descending and the ascension and him ascending. He's basically saying, I'm talking about Jesus here, that Jesus is the victor who has shared the spoils of war with his people. And so you have to ask yourself, what are the spoils of victory? When it comes to Jesus' victory, what, what, what does that entail? Well, you know, we sing that song sometimes uh, called, Jesus, You Have Won Me. See, the, the spoils of victory are the sons and daughters. Like, we are the spoils of that victory. Like, look around the room for a second. We're the spoils. We're the land, we're the money, we're the weapons, we're the whatever you want to think of it. That the king is like, here's what I won. 
And what does he do with it? He's like, well, I'm going to share the spoils. Well, what does that mean? That means that he's given us one another. He's shared one another with us. And when we think about spiritual gifts or we think about all these different kinds of things, we have to realize that, that yes, how the manifestation of the Spirit shows up in your life, that is a spiritual gift. But you know what another gift is that God's given you? The people that you're sitting by. The people that you sit in a community group with. The people that you're on a text thread with who are praying for you about various things. The people that you walk through your life with. He's like, here's what I've won and now I'm going to give you to one another. That's pretty beautiful. So another way to think about the church is we are the spoils of victory that have been shared with one another, that we are all mutually benefiting from what Jesus has done and who who we are. And so the sons and daughters are the spoils that are shared with each other. And to Paul and to uh, what those that he is discipling and the churches he has planted, it's essential that we think of the church in this way. That our calling is to be holy, loved children of God. That's what we're called to. And our lives need to be lived in a way that is like consistent with that and reflects that. And a part of what makes that happen with us among each other is to recognize the gifts that he has given to us in each other. I find that to be quite humbling. It's very different than how I thought about church growing up, not because of my teachers or anything like that, just my mindset was just not that, you know. The older I get and I hear this explained, I start to think, yeah, this person is a gift to me. This person is a gift to me. This community group is a gift to me. This congregation is a gift to me, you know. That Jesus is just like, look, I'm sharing. Look how much better your life is because of these people. And it makes me want to live a life that makes your life better too. And I think that's the point. And so if you hear this and it kind of makes you like think a little differently, but also it makes you want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have been called, then that's, that's what he's going for here. I think that's the point of him writing this. Then he gets specific and he kind of, he kind of like singles out a group of people. Um, verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. He goes on to explain a few more things, but let's let's talk about that group for a second. Within all of the gifts that he has given to us, Paul, being carried by the Spirit and writing this letter, uh, feels led to talk about the leaders for a second. Now he's not exalting the leaders; he's not saying they're better than or more important than or anything else like that. But it could be maybe Ephesus, maybe maybe the church in Ephesus needed this to be emphasized somehow, or. Maybe the Spirit just knew this needed to be a part of the canon. There's all kinds of reasons. But this is what he does. He talks about the leadership of the church. And 
as the global church is then subdivided into local expressions, within each of those local expressions, there are people giving leadership to the family. In every family, someone has to give leadership to it. So in most of our like family families, it's the parents giving leadership to the family in some regard, right? And in every church family, there's people giving leadership to things. And Paul is saying that the way that God has put the church together, the way that the leaders are set apart in a sense is by their giftedness. Remember in the Old Testament when Israel was like, we want a king, everybody else has a king, we want a king. And God's like, no, I'm going to be your king. And they're like, "Mm, no, we want a king like everybody. We want to be just like everybody else. Comparison as a nation had gotten to them. So they go and they find themselves a king. And how did they pick Saul? Does anybody remember? Because he was taller than everybody else. They went and picked the tall guy. So yeah, that's a pretty good, pretty good way to pick a leader. Height. It did not go very well for them. Tall people, overrated in my opinion. Just kidding. But then when David comes along... God says, look, man looks at the outward appearance. I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking at, a, at the heart of David. That God has a different way of doing that. And when it, comes, when it comes to leaders, we could just put the tall people in charge. Or the loud people in charge. you know, Or the people with a lot of ideas are very outspoken. Or the people with a lot of money, a lot of influence, a lot of power. Like We could, we could structure the church that way. But God says, no, I'm going to do everything based on giftedness. And so as you're figuring out, figuring out who's going to do what in the church, giftedness is going to be crucial for you. Don't get caught up in the worldly stuff of picking based on, choosing your leaders based on all these other criteria. You need to look at how I've built them. And it isn't that, one's, that, that these leaders are better than, or it's not, it's not about a, a hierarchy or anything. It's just saying we're all different, a plurality of gifts. We've been studying that for weeks and just, but these gifts, these are the people that are going to give leadership to the family. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers. What's the difference there? The, the apostles are, they're, they're your visionaries. They're forward thinking. They're looking at planting churches or starting new ministries or looking at like, what, what, what's not happening over here? How can we start this? They're, they're, um, they have that sense of startup. Your prophets, they're the ones that are in the room being like, this is what God is saying, right? Like, like, there's a deep conviction about God's leadership and being able to hear from him. There's a lot of discernment with prophets. Your evangelists, they're the ones that are like, are we, are we, like, are we even considering those who don't know Jesus in this? We, we have to make sure there's an opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ through whatever it is that we're doing. That, that has to be a part of what's happening. The shepherds are there being the, the, the caregivers. They're the, they're the ones that are, that are nurturing. They're the ones that are, are sitting with those who are grieving or they're celebrating with those who uh, have, are having like something to celebrate. And uh, those, are, those are your pastor figures. And then your teachers, they're the ones who are able to take the scriptures, synthesize it, break it down, and communicate it in a way that uh, people are like, okay, I understand that now. So the, these are the gifts that need to be in the different roles of giving leadership to the family. That's how God put it together. 
And so, so understand the, the, the flow of everything where he's starting off saying, this is your calling to be holy, loved children. God has made you one. And he's gifted you, given you one another in spiritual gifts, and he's given you to one another. And some of you are going to give leadership to this family mission because God designed it that way. Because that's going to help you walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So let them let them lead. Let them be themselves. And and if you're if that's if that's not how you're gifted, then you you need to operate in your gifts because they need you to be gifted in the way that you're gifted. And if everyone is doing what they're supposed to do, something incredible happens. And those leaders are there not to do the ministry, but it says right there in verse eleven to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Who are the saints? We all, that's us, the sons and daughters. So the leaders of the family are supposed to be getting you ready to go to work. To go into the real world and take a beautiful gospel into a lot of pain and a lot of difficulty and a lot of confusion and a lot of lies. And so every time we're together, Sundays, community groups, equipping classes, just getting coffee with each other, whatever it is, equipping us like that's supposed to spur us on and get us more ready for what tomorrow holds. That's why we do the things we do the way that we do them. That's, that's why our structure and our programming and all the kind of things that we have here, that's, why, that's where it all comes from, is that's our calling, to be equipped to go. And so this rhythm of gathering and scattering, gathering and scattering, that's all on purpose because God designed it that way. And what happens, we'll look at again at verse 11 at the end of it. Sorry, verse 12. When the saints are equipped for ministry, here's what happens. The building up of the body of Christ. Look at the next verse. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So when when we understand this oneness of our calling... And we are realizing the, the, the way that God has put us together in this. And the body is functioning the way it's supposed to. And everyone's gifts are being used. And the saints are being equipped for the work of ministry. It, it has this strengthening effect, this building effect. And, and there's, like, notice the key words that he uses there in the verses. Building up, uh, unity of trust, uni- unity of knowledge, maturity, fullness, it's all pointing toward like Christ-likeness. As the body of Christ is built up, we grow up into him who's the head of the body. In other words, we're becoming more and more and more and more like him. The whole goal of the church is to become like him. That's what everything has to be producing in us. We're not trying to be him in some sort of like metaphysical, like weird kind of way. We're trying to to be more and more and more the people who live in the image of the one we are created in. And he's just welcoming us into this, inviting us into this, because he, he made it all, this is like all the plan of the Father, Son, Spirit. In the last few verses that we're going to look at today, he, he talks about the, the fruitfulness of this, how, like, how, like what this leads to. Verse 14 So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
Now, this doesn't apply to our children in this room, but most children fall for anything. None of our kids do that. They're too smart for it. But kids, notoriously, they're suckers, man. Like, they'll fall for whatever. Because they're young and they haven't learned to discern yet. And Paul's saying, we, you and your faith can, can be that way. And in Ephesus, this was an issue. Like, they were just... They would just believe all kinds of things because they were so young in their faith. And he's like, hey, it's time to grow up. When when the body is doing what it's supposed to do, and then when the saints are being equipped for the work of ministry, and and the body is strengthening and growing, you know what happens? You You get more discerning. You become sharper at being able to decide when something is true and when something is a lie straight from hell. You get better and better and better and better. You stop falling for stuff. And you know what? We live in a world where it seems like it's getting worse. It seems like there's just more and more and more stuff to fall into that just isn't true. And so we need the discernment of the Spirit. We we need to be the most discerning people in our community. We need to be the most discerning people in our city. We need to be the most stable because we're rooted in something that's bigger than ourselves. We're rooted in what's true. And so Paul is saying this, this will produce this in you. This, this kind of building up will allow you to navigate through the culture that you live in and the world that you live in. Look at verse 15 as we close. So instead of getting duped into everything, he says, rather... And I love this passage. Speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way and into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined, to get, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's, I mean, who wouldn't want to be a part of that? You know, like a, a living, breathing congregation that builds itself up in love. This is this is the life worthy of the calling. This is what sonship looks like. It's what daughtership, I don't know if that's a word, looks like. This is this is what Jesus holds out to us. This is this is where we're trying to take living hope. From one degree to another, closer and closer and closer and closer. And all it takes is us saying yes to it. We don't have to twist God's arm to do this. We don't have to like, hey, God, I've got a, we've got a new idea for you. He's the one saying, hey, i got a new idea for you. Hey, I know you think church is like this and this and this and this, and there's a lot of different things out there uh, about it, but let, let, let me define who you are, and then let me lead you to it. And so it's about us saying yes. It's about you as, in, as individuals saying yes. It's about married couples saying yes. It's about families saying yes. It's about friendship, groups of friends saying yes. It's about your community group saying yes and us on Sundays saying yes. It's about you on a Tuesday afternoon when you're, you're at work and you're just like just going crazy about saying yes. Create any, any, any scenario in my list and it's about saying yes to that. About saying yes to it, not only just not only when we are together, but also when we're apart. 
But that unity that the Spirit provides is maintained in all of our different settings. So as I said, in the next few weeks, we're going to, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, how this finds expression in like living hope in different ways. Um, but honestly, it's not going to get better than this right here. You know, like it comes from this into more like practical things for us. But what a what a vision, you know. I, I can't imagine looking at that and saying, I don't really want to be a part of that. And so to know that God's on board and he's given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who's called us to his own glory and excellence. And let's just keep saying yes. And so there's verse 1 through 16 that Paul would have to say, not only to this group in Ephesus, but also to us as well. And so whatever it is that you need to grab onto in there, whatever it could be big picture stuff, it could be really specific things, uh, in the next couple of weeks, we'll kind of build on that foundation. But I think the thing to close with today is the fact that Jesus died so all this would happen. Like he, like this is the vision of heaven for us. And Jesus did what he had to do in order to make this happen. And this is, this is God's plan for us. Like what, what kind of king wants this for his people? Well, our king does. And so we're going to sing. If you want to pray, you can stay where you are and pray. You can come kneel down here and pray if you want to. We're going to just respond to what God may be stirring in us today. So let's stand together. I'm going to pray. We'll sing a little bit. We'll bless each other. Lord, I'm thankful for this passage and thankful for for Paul's, uh, his passion for your people and for the Spirit's leadership of him in writing these words. Of course, our... uh, our deep desire, I mean, the Christ in us wants everything that's on this page to be true. And so would you help us to find our own ways to say yes to what you're doing? Not just in a living hope sense, but in a like global, like all the sons and daughters around the world are called to this same thing. We need your help in living a life that's worthy of the calling. And you've made us one. You've done all of this. And we just need to join you. Most of all, it says a lot to us, God, about who you are. What kind of king would share these kinds of spoils of victory? What kind of king would, would share the kingdom? What kind of king would have the humility and gentleness and patience to bear with one another, to bear with us in love? What kind of king would lay down his own life so that his rebellious sons and daughters could be free? What kind of king invites all of his citizens to join him in the mission 
to invite more people into the kingdom, to expand the borders, and to uh, to welcome all who would come to him. Only a king who has an infinite resource of love and provision and grace. Only that kind of king has that kind of generosity and kindness. And so as we sing to you and we sing about you, may you be the focal point of the mission of the church in all things and all ways.